going to continue in Romans uh, chapter 15. And I, uh, I, so Mark did such a good job of getting us from 1 to 13 um, that this is the nice thing about preaching together is, uh, uh, is, is he was preaching it and giving us kind of more of the big picture. Um, I, I got the opportunity to think a little bit more about this passage in probably a little bit different way and thought, oh, I really would like to be able to do that area of it alone. So I am, Mark preached the message that probably should be preached out of this passage if you're preaching it all together, where I'm going to look at it a little bit uh, at a different angle. Um, And so I don't think the thing that I'm going to be looking at is the only thrust of the passage or the main thrust of the passage, but I hope it's something that we can see um, that will help um, uh, us understand the biblical worldview a little bit better. Um, so let me begin by reading verses 7 through 13. Uh, and I realize I failed to put verse 7 on the uh, PowerPoint. So verse 7, I'll just read it and then we'll catch up. You guys can catch up with us with verse 8. But, sorry, one other quick side. We're going to talk more about this. But I just want to make sure everybody's together. If you haven't been following since about chapter 13, we've got this issue of Jews and Gentiles all gathered to worship together. Uh, when they used to be completely separate in everything, especially worship, and now they're all in the church together, and now they're trying to figure all that out. That's the background that we are aiming at together. Therefore, so after all of that, and this is Paul's final word on this, so this is therefore, after all they've said, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you For the glory of God. Verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jews, to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. He's quoting here from 2 Samuel 22. That's one quote. Verse 10. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. It's quoting now from Deuteronomy 32. Verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. He's quoting here from Psalm 117. And finally, verse 12, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. Quoting there from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. In believing, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father God, you are rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great. And your heart is kind. 
You deserve all of our attention, every bit of it. You deserve all of the worship we could ever muster. You are so much more massive than any of us could ever begin to imagine. Your scale is unending. You are so powerful, so holy, so perfect, so true, so strong, so kind, so merciful, so good. You draw all of us, Father, by the massive weight of your glory. And so I pray, I pray that we as humans, fallen humans who are so out of balance in how we think of things, God, would you be kind enough by your word to show us the scale of God and show us the small scale of us. Let us delight in the gift of your word and in the gift of your son. And I pray, Father, that you would get glory for us, your children, seeing who you are and giving you the credit that is due to you. Father, let us welcome one another because this is how Christ has done, but let us do it for the glory of God. Father, I pray that in this time together, you would situate our worldview, situate our hearts, do something in us where we see even clearer who we are and who you are and the importance of your word. We ask all these things to you, Father, through the grand name of Jesus Christ, our King. and pray that your spirit would do his bidding. Amen. My first job out of college was teaching physics at a high school in Charlotte. It was a fantastic experience. So were you to ask me who is my favorite physicist, I would certainly say Isaac Newton. Uh, I don't think he'd be one of the people I'd most like to meet. He was actually known for being quite reclusive and rude and awkward. But still, I greatly appreciate his work and his genius. Uh, when Newton was around 22, he returned home from Cambridge. Uh, as the school had shut down due to a small pandemic known as the bubonic plague. And so while sitting outside and thinking one day, Sir Isaac watched an apple fall from a tree and was intrigued. And instead of concluding that that's just what apples do, he began to question, why is it that that apple went from being held by the tree to now in flight and then now resting on the ground? It was that observation that gave that from that observation went on to work and he ended up with his intellectual masterpiece. Um, one of my favorite of all uh, uh, physics theories, and that is the universal law of gravitation. Now, I used to love introducing the law, universal law of gravitation to my students. My job in life was to always find a way to weird them out. Um, so I started the lecture by explaining, these are juniors and seniors, uh, I started the lecture by explaining that according to the bedrock principles of physics, that all of them, every one of them, 
were attracted to one another. So I was teaching advanced AP physics, so you can imagine my class makeup. As I explained this point about the mutual attraction across the room, the guys lit up with delight, with a look on their face like, I knew it. I just knew it. Meanwhile, most of the girls had a look of horror across their face, like I knew physics was bogus. I absolutely knew it's bogus. And so I would, I would go on to explain to them about Newton and his apple. And I explained that Newton discovered that there was actually no magic running through the universe that just made things fall. Instead, he discovered that any two, two masses, be it an earth, an apple, a boy, a girl, a worm, or a fig newton, any two masses, at least a small force of attraction is always pulling them together. So why are we not all in a ball like a rubber band glued together right now? Well, because Newton also explained that the amount of force between two objects comes down to how big those two objects are. For example, an earth is much bigger than an apple, and an apple is constantly being pulled by big, 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 big earth. This pull by the earth is so great that it causes the tree to finally just give up and let go of the apple, and the apple continues all the way down until the ground stops it. Why? Because the apple is small and the earth is huge, at least compared to the apple. I offered relief to the girls and simultaneous disappointment to the boys by explaining that the force of gravitational attraction between two humans was actually quite negligible, given the mass of humans is relatively small. But I also pointed out that technically, the more weight any two humans gain, the stronger the attraction must be. So they should lose their diets and grab a bag of Oreos. So what, what Newton found was that the same reason the apple left the tree and plummeted towards the earth was the same reason the earth continues in its orbit around the sun. That is, the earth is being pulled by the sun constantly in the same manner that that apple was being pulled by the tree. Basically, really large things attract really small things. So why do people float on the moon? Well, they don't float. They just aren't being pulled down with nearly the same force as on the earth because the earth happens to be about a hundred times more massive than the moon. So what is the key? The universal law of gravitation. Really, really large things rule things that are much smaller than they are. The apple is ruled by the earth, which is much more massive. And the earth is ruled by the sun, which is much more massive. And the world, what in the world does this have to do with Romans 15? <laughs> well, I hope, I hope by the end that you'll see a connection. Um, if not, it's just been a long time since I got to explain the universal law of gravitation. I need to get off my chest. Hmm. Well, in case you haven't journeyed with us through chapters 13 through 15, let me remind you that Paul has been encouraging the Roman church, the Roman church to live with peace with one another. The Roman church was made up of mostly Gentiles. 
But there was also a number of members of the Roman church who came from a Jewish background. Those from Jewish background were trying to figure out what part of their customs should be left in the past and which ones should be brought with them. But many in the Gentile population, Gentile members were also trying to figure out which part of their former lives should be altered and which should remain the same. So Paul has offered arguments to each side about how to live in peace with one another. And now Paul turns to his final argument. And I think you could sum it up with something like this. Folks, let's just be real. This isn't about you. This is much bigger than you. I think his argument is something like, folks, let's look at what orbits what. Let's consider what orbits what. Romans 15, 7, he says, therefore, so given all this stuff, welcome one another. As Christ has welcomed you, and here's the key, here's the purpose for the glory of God. Paul tells the Romans to welcome one another because they are part of something bigger than themselves. Much, much bigger. They are to welcome one another because they are participating in the grand glory of God and his provident plan for the universe. So I believe verse 7 is a setup for verses 8 through 12. And then Paul will give us a wrap up in verse 13. So as we consider 8 through 12 together, I want us to be on the hunt for the massive. The hunt for the massive. I, I want us to act like Newton. Instead of just watching an apple fall, he asked some questions and came up with something really big. He was able to see the difference between the apple, the earth, and the sun. So here's what we're looking for. Where's the apple? Where's the earth? And where's the sun in the biblical orbit? Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the Roman church, said it multiple times now, made up of Jews and made up of Gentiles. The Jews are often referred to as the circumcised. Paul is saying that Jesus came as a servant to the Jews in order to prove that God is true. God has made a promise to the fathers, to the patriarchs, that he would send a savior to their offspring. In the book of Genesis, we see this very explicit. The promises are given to Abraham in chapters 12 and 15. Promises are given to Isaac, Abraham's son, in chapter 22. And promises are given to Jacob, Isaac's son, in chapter 28. Paul is saying, and this is key from the Christian worldview, that as soon as those promises are spoken, God's glory, God's character are on the line. Those promises could not fail to come true. Paul doesn't doubt that any reader in his letter will fail to know these promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He just explains it. We got promises. Y'all know the promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, promises of the patriarchs. Everybody says, yeah, the promises of the patriarchs. Then he turns to the second point of the promises. 
the promises involving the Gentiles. Paul understands that many people with the, uh, even familiar with the scriptures may not see the pervasive nature of God's plan involving the Gentiles. And so now he proof texts. He doesn't even give one proof text for his point about the Jews. And now he gives four proof texts for his point about the Gentiles. And so he goes forth to show us that not only did God have big plans involving Gentiles, but these were seen and savored across the pages of the Old Testament. He offers us excerpts of four Old Testament passages to show that God gave his word that the Gentiles would be included in his plan of mercy. God's on the line. Now, it would be very helpful, and I think it'd be interesting to carefully study each of the passages there listed in detail. I don't think time's going to allow it. Um, I did go ahead, and for each of those passages on your handout, I gave you a summary of what's happening in those passages and then underlined for you where this actual text is taken, but we're not going to have time to go through it in detail like that. But quickly, we'll walk through these very, very briefly. In verse 9, Paul cites 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, And I put you a timeline for every one of these. So in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, that one is around the time of David. 2 Samuel 22 is a song of David offered towards the end of his life. This is David towards the end. In this passage, David looks back at his life and he sees God's great deliverance across the pages of his life. He reminds the people of God that only God can deliver them. And then in verses 50 through 51, David looks towards God's future salvation and he sees that as a time of including the praise of the Gentiles. Hence, we get the citation in verse 9. So Paul starts with David, the most famous of the Jewish kings, and then he backs up uh, 500 years in verse 10 to show a passage at the end of Moses' life. That's Deuteronomy 32. Now Moses, he's also at the end of his life. This is also a song. It's a song of David, now it's a song of Moses. That's where he's quoting from. Moses at the end of his life, two chapters later, and Moses is going to die. Um, he expresses, Moses expresses God's steadfast love to Israel as he looks back at his life. In the midst of all of their disobedience, he expresses how God has taken care of him. Then, in verse 43, Moses looks forward to God ruling the whole world as Moses thinks about it. He envisions that God will rule all peoples, including Gentiles. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So this is, this is what he's seeing. This is what he's rejoicing in. Next, Paul turns. I'm actually going to go out of order and then come back. We're going to go to verse 12. Next, Paul turns to one of the most helpful chapters in the Old Testament. This chapter comes out about... Um, 500 years, I said uh, most helpful, it is a helpful chapter, but it's really one of the most hopeful chapters out of the Old Testament. It's out of Isaiah chapter 11. So 500 years after David. So he starts with David, backs up 500 years. Now he goes 500 years after David. It's a picture of the coming kingdom. And there Isaiah 
is picturing the coming kingdom. We we actually use verses from this all the time. You hear us reference these. It's actually become part of our nomenclature in just regular uh, English. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. That comes from Isaiah 11. Or the nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. That comes out of Isaiah 11. And then in verse 10, we get the image that when the new kingdom comes, the Messiah will come from the line of David. But we're also told that he will come to rule the Gentiles and in him, the Gentiles will hope. Then the fourth one, which is actually quoted verse 11. Finally, Paul cites a verse from Psalm 117. So Psalm 117 is part of what we call the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms contain Psalms 113 through 118. These are very important in the life of, of, Jew, of the Jewish life. They would have been especially important in the life of Jesus and his disciples. I gave you a summary of all of those psalms in that handout. So you may recall that on the night that Jesus uh, of his crucifixion, uh, there at the, at the end of the supper, they went out, both Mark and Matthew report this, it says that they went out singing. Well, they weren't singing 10,000 reasons. They were singing the Hallel. So they would have sung this out loud. And so they would have sung Psalm 117, which is what Paul is quoting from. And so the night that Jesus the Messiah goes to the cross, he is singing about the day when Gentiles will come praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles. So this would have been one of the things that Jesus is, is singing with his disciples on the night that he dies. So Notice that the passages picked by Paul, they show the idea of Gentiles being included in the mercy of God, being included in the plan of God. Number one, it's all across the Old Testament. You, you watch this, check all the boxes, right? From David to Moses uh, uh, to the time of the exile all the way to Jesus um, himself. So it's all across the Old Testament. And... It is an idea that gave hope. It gave hope to Moses. It gave hope to David. It even gave hope to Isaiah and even gave hope to Jesus as he faced death. So, going all the way back to verse 7, Paul tells the believers to welcome each other because this is bigger than any of them. This is about the glory of God. He explains what he means in verse 8 as he explains the very idea of Jews and Gentiles being part of the church of God was promised all the way across the ages. Abraham closed his eyes knowing God promised he would be a blessing to the nation. Moses closed his eyes envisioning that God would show mercy to wayward Gentiles like God had shown mercy to wayward Israel. David closed his eyes Picturing a day when God would deliver the Messiah who would rule over Jews and Gentiles. Isaiah encouraged, was encouraged in troubled times as he pictured a new world of truth and justice, including Gentile followers of God. And finally, Jesus went to the cross singing praises to God for the future worship of the Gentiles. So if you recall, before we went on our little hunt there, I asked us to look for apple. For earth, 
for son. I believe that Paul's line of argumentation relies on the following setup. The son, that about around which all things orbit, is God, the glory of God. The earth is the word of God, the promises of God. And finally, the apples, those are the children of God. The children of God are drawn by, they're constantly being pulled by, pulled in place by the massive weight of God's word. God's word is held in place by the massive weight of God, his truthfulness, his character, his plan. Why in the world do I think that matters? Maybe it's just a fun intellectual exercise. I don't believe so. I think figuring out the orbits of the biblical universe should be a priority for the Christian church and for Christian preaching. I believe the contemporary church has often mistaken the apple, the earth, and the sun. I'm afraid that we have often made the individual believer the sun. We've made God the earth and relegated the word of God to apple-like status. Following a culture that puts man at the center, we have relegated human experience and personal happiness to a status it just cannot bear. And I believe this text helps prove that. After spending two chapters explaining why Gentiles and Jews should welcome one another, Paul now makes the point they should welcome one another because the it, this is bigger than any of them. The fact that they are part of a church who worships the God-man Jesus made up of Jews and Gentiles means that God and his promises are drawing them and they have the amazing privilege of being part of the kingdom of God. It's as if Paul says, with all due respect, this is much, much bigger than you. So much more massive than you. The Bible clearly teaches that God is created. God has acted. God has spoken. It clearly holds that God rules the world and holds the world together at every millisecond. But time after time, I read interviews where people describe God with something on the lines of, you know, I like to think of God as, and then they go on. Or the God that fits my way of thinking is more like, and then they go on. With all due respect, what difference does it matter what the apple thinks of the sun? On the other hand, if the sun stops being anything but the sun for just a second, then the apple will be in for a very tough ride. In the same manner, the word of God is not made to serve our every need. The word of God is massively bigger than us. But how often do we treat God's word as if it orbits around us and not like we should orbit around it? I don't have to read every passage and decide what it means to me. I don't have to read every passage and determine how it makes me feel. 
Instead, I need to read the scriptures in hopes they teach me about God. I should read the scriptures hoping to learn about God, learn about his plan and about his church. Don't turn them into my personal therapy session. Now, stick with all that, because I think that's all. I think if you don't hold to that, Paul's argument, I kept trying to think of this different ways, and I'm convinced of it. There's, if you don't follow what I'm saying, then Paul's argument is completely bogus to you. It doesn't work. His whole argument, you get his whole argument. His whole argument here is, listen, you all get along for the glory of God. God's name is on the line here. Why? Because he spoke about the Jews and he spoke about the Gentiles. Y'all got to get along because God has already ordained this. Don't make this about you. Make it about God and make it about his word. And then I love verse 13. He shows us what it means to allow this massiveness of God and the massiveness of his word to encourage us. So after walking through the Romans through an Old Testament survey there, I mean, he did. He just covers like, oh, here's a little Second Samuel. Here's a little Deuteronomy. You want to throw a little Hillel over there, a little Isaiah. I mean, he just walks right through it. Then he turns to this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and underline this in believing how in believing so by the power of the holy spirit what's the main job of the holy spirit give us his word you may abound in hope paul asks that the god of hope will fill them with all in, of joy and peace in believing but what does he mean to be filled in joy and peace in believing in believing means faith it means faith in God's word. So Paul expects that after hearing of how God has made these promises across the ages, that the Roman church will find joy and peace in God, in his ways. Basically, he's asking them to find joy and peace in believing they are part of the very work of God. And as they believe in God, as they believe in the word of God, as they believe in the works of God, they will find joy and peace realizing they have been included in the very orbit of God. As Christians, we believe that God has acted according to his promise in giving us his son, Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the word of God. Paul explains in verses 8 and 9 that Jesus was sent as a fulfillment to the promises made to the Jews and as an opportunity of blessing for the Gentiles. By believing in the work of Jesus alone and laying aside their former beliefs, both the former Jewish and former Gentile members of the Roman church could experience joy and peace. How? In believing. Oddly enough, this is really odd. I was finishing sermon prep and a song on my playlist popped up and I really liked it. It was beautifully well done as a a rendition of a, of a hymn. And in fact, I actually had planned to use it for the opening of a quip hour, but I've never heard of this artist, which doesn't say much. I'm, I'm horrible with artist names, all that stuff. Um, so I, I decided, well, if I'm going to use it, I should probably know something about the artist. So I quickly Googled um, the artist. Um, well, I mean, just like that, tons of articles um, come up about this artist. Um, that, that's interesting. Well, evidently, 
um, this young lady, she has recently decided to go public with her, quote, deconversion. Now, remember, I was going to use this tonight, this hymn by this young lady for to start our thing. Very glad to chat. Uh, evidently, this is a new thing. That is, evangelicals who are publicly declaring that they are deconverting. This young lady expressed that basically, I read this really long interview on her. Uh, she expressed that basically Christianity just doesn't work for her anymore. She is still not decided exactly what works for her. She can maybe see where she could fit in some of the things in Christianity when she does. She's got some Zen Buddhism stuff she wants to throw in there as well. She says she's, she's not completely through with God, but just not sure what role he plays for her. I wish I could tell you this is the first article I've read like this in the last few years. It's not. I mean, nowhere even close. It really is uh, becoming more prevalent. As I read it and I thought of the sermon, and I've, I'm mostly done at that point, I actually said out loud, wow, the apple wants to be the sun. The apple wants to be the sun. I, I'm intentionally not mentioning her name. I feel for her and deeply hope she will find joy and peace in believing. But I think we will see more casualties like this if we don't talk about the orbits. The earth is not moving towards the apple. The apple is moving towards the earth. The sun is not held in orbit by the earth. No, the earth is held in orbit by the sun. What any one of us thinks about God, quite frankly, doesn't affect God in the slightest. But what God thinks about us massively affects us. Whether or not we believe God's word, it will have no bearing on the word of God at all. But whether or not we believe God's word will have a massive effect on us. I invite you, if you're an active, if you're not an active follower of God, would you submit today to the biblical orbit? I invite all of us to submit to the word of God. I invite us to live in submission and reverence to the plan and the ways of God. Our culture tells us that our thoughts and our feelings and our happiness, they're at the center of the universe. But it's not true. God is so much bigger than us. In the way that the sun is bigger than the apple, He is the center of the universe. I invite us to think of church in this manner. Let us not form our church around the wrong orbit. It's very tempting to form your church kind of like you would form a gym. Figure out what the members will like, offer it, and then they'll come. Folks, this is not how to form a church. The way we form our church, our relationships, our services, our happenings should reflect the biblical orbit. God, the glory of God should draw all of our attention and all of our reverence. His word should get the weight it's due. And we should all be drawn to the word of God. And by being drawn to the word of God, we'll begin to orbit around God. I think if we are honest with ourselves, 
we know there is no hope if we are the center of things. We know ourselves too well. We know that there's got to be something bigger than us. And if there's not, there is not a lot of hope. Verse 13 is a prayer by Paul that the Roman believers, by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit, that they would enjoy all the spiritual benefits of surrendering to the orbit of God. May the God of hope, massive God of hope, fill you all with joy and peace. Definitely cares about their feelings and their experience. It's good to have joy and to have peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. As God opens their eyes to see themselves in relation to the Word of God, in relation to God Himself, then they will abound in actual joy, actual peace, and find real hope. Friends, God has spoken. He's on the record. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Moses. And he spoke to David. Isaiah heard him. And his prior promises were on the lips of Jesus as he died to fulfill them. We cannot create our own hope or our own happiness. But we can find hope. Real hope filled with joy and peace and believing in the word of God and the God who gave it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to pause all of our movement through this text and, and just stop and look at really the the thrust of an argument and why the argument works and be reminded we are not the center of the universe. God, it is so easy to buy the lie of the culture around us that everything should revolve around us and our happiness and our experience. Oh, but God, let us not sell ourselves so short. Let us see things as they are by your Spirit, Father. It's a spiritual thing. It's what the Holy Spirit has to do. Would he open our hearts to see the massiveness of God, the incredible reality of his spoken word, and then situate ourselves around it. Father, please, Show us that by your grace. We ask these things through the name of your son who has made it possible. We ask that your spirit will continue to grow and teach us. Amen.